Good afternoon. My name's David Willits. Welcome to this event, which is a, a bold experiment in which the LSE, uh, who are holding this uh, festival, uh, the Space for Thought Literary Festival, have kindly invited us at Resolution Foundation to join them for an event on intergenerational fairness. And it's a great opportunity, which we greatly appreciate. Uh, and uh, it's le the least we could do, as Professor Sir John Hills has kindly agreed to serve on our Intergenerational Commission, uh, which we greatly appreciate. Uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to very briefly set the scene with a few brief slides, honest. Um, we did actually say to all of the speakers that we wouldn't use slides, and then... John and I decided that we would, which is typical of how baby boomers treat the younger generation, really. Um, so we've got a... I, I'll do a, a three brief slides trying to just set the framework. Uh, then you'll hear from John of the LSE. Then from Georgia Gould, Labour Councillor from Camden, Omar Khan, Director of the Runnymede Trust, and Nona Buckley Irvin, who is the former General Secretary of the Students' Union here, uh, and a Labour Party activist. So it's great that we've got such a panel, and of course there'll be opportunities for you to put your questions. But let me just very briefly try to set the scene in a way that I hope does not kind of uh, uh, provoke too much disagreement. It's intended just to set the factual basics. And this is the, the, this is the first basic fact, which is quite simply, what are we talking about when we describe a group called the baby boomers? And uh, this is, there's no kind of official definition. This is the definition I offer in my book, which is very much based, I think, on the kind of conventional view, which is that surge post the war in the, in the number of babies born with those two peaks in 1947 and 1964, when we had more than a million babies born, you can subject to that to sophisticated economic analysis, which is one, what one would expect at the LSE. Alternatively, you can say it followed two very cold winters. But for whatever reason, we ended up with a lot of babies born in those two years. And throughout the whole period, it never fell below 800,000. And if you look at before and after, there were... Subsequently, there's hardly any point when the rate has exceeded 800,000. You then have this, so that's 20 years or so. You then have Generation X from kind of 1966 to about 1980, which covers this very low point. Oh, sorry. Which covers this very low point. Again, you, can, you could observe that that followed the very hot summer of 1976. Uh, then we've got the millennials and the latest gen. Now, I, it's important to do this partly because as these definitions are partly cultural and to do with turning points and absolute numbers, it means that different cohorts cover different periods. We have not simply sliced the 20th century up into five 20-year sectors. Um, and secondly, because whenever I talk about this issue, I get a series of, of letters on Basildon Bond notepaper written in beautifully neat handwriting and biro by uh, 
older people saying, Mr. Willits, my life has been very tough and I'm 87 and I'm struggling to make ends meet and why do you think I'm so rich? So just to be absolutely clear, although there are issues about the distribution of income within every age group, the baby booms we're talking about will now be aged roughly between 50 and 70. Um, here is an income slide showing what's happened on, on pay for successive generations. That is the kind of path we're used to with successive generations enjoying improvements in their pay compared with the previous generation at the same age. That process has carried on. Of course, the flattening is a reminder that there are period effects as well, um, including effects from the most recent uh, crash, 2008. But look where the millennials are. Uh, at the moment, uh, we doesn't look as if they have done any better than, and on some measures worse than, the generation before them. And we at Resolution are bringing out further analysis on this for tomorrow morning, trying to really understand what's happening there. Um, that's an income measure, but in many ways these issues of fairness between the generations are even more acute when you look at assets, the two main assets of course being pensions and houses, and uh, here is the house, the home ownership story, uh, where again, a similar pattern until you start seeing generations falling behind. So it's, the kind of uh, uh, starting point is I think there is an issue. I'm sure in the course of the debate now, people will argue about the relative significance of intergenerational equity as against intragenerational unfairness. And of course, there are other differences that worry people, gender equity, ethnic issues, class. Uh, but I would argue that a lot of post-war British social analysis fo focused on those type of divides, and we hadn't really thought about the generational, the cohort issue, and there is also here some evidence of unfairness between generations, which is not simply the result of the other sorts of unfairness with which we are familiar and on which uh, John and others have written so eloquently. So that's a brief attempt to describe the background. It now gives me great pleasure to invite uh, Sir John Hill's professor here to give his brief presentation. John, over to you. Um, thank you very much. I mean, yes, I'm sorry there will be some slides, um, uh, but not many. Um, and I'm afraid for some of you they will be depressing slides. Um, not all of you. Um, um, this is a literary festival, and the point of a literary festival is to plug one's book. So this is the second edition of my book, Good Times, Bad Times, um, which, is published, which is published today um, to coincide with this event, and there are copies of it. <laughs> For sale outside. There are actually also copies of The Pinch oh, thank for you. sale outside thank and, and some other possibly uh, more exciting books than either David's or mine. Um, but um, there is part of the, uh, my book which is about the dynamics of people's lives, which is explicitly about some of these um, intergenerational issues. And I, all I'm going to do by way of showing some slides is to make three points. Um, but I think they're three points that interlock in terms of how we think of these issues of intergenerational fairness. So the first, and this is work carried out in the Center for Analysis of Social Exclusion, and it's kind of, it, it just shows in a different way what David just showed in terms of the, the earnings of people born in the 1980s. Um, 
This is the change in real median hourly pay by age between roughly 2007 and 2013, in other words, in the the six years immediately um, after the crisis. Um, And this is the median pay by by age. Am I allowed to move away from the thing? Um, Easier for me to point if I can wander. So um, men on the left, women on the right... And these are the percentage changes um, that are divided into two areas, but just concentrate on the, um, on, on the, um, uh, on the total size of the bars. So people, um, baby boomer types like David and me, um, basically no change in real median pay over those six years. For men, slight fall for women. Again, for people uh, compared with their predecessors who are in their 70s, um, but these astonishing falls for um, people, this is people 20 to 24, 25 to 29, even bigger for the small number of working before that. So very big falls in pay for both men and women. I've only put up median pay, but you see the same for the 90th percentile, the best paid um, young people born in the 1980s. Um, You see this kind of pattern. If you put that together with the other things that drive people's um, incomes... Um, to look at total um, family income um, uh, and then the, the individuals within that. So this is looking, this is looking all the way through from um, five and under through to aged over 80 and the change after allowing for housing costs. These extraordinary falls compared with their predecessors six years before of 20%, 18% for people um, aged in their 20s um, uh, in 2012-13 by comparison with 2007-8. I mean, those are really very striking falls over a short period. It doesn't mean the individuals, you know, we're comparing people in their 20s with previous people in their 20s, um, so it doesn't mean the individuals have necessarily got worse off. But, but compared with a sort of more golden age for people in their 20s, um, people born in the 1980s, and I can see a few of you, I think, in the audience, um, have done very badly through the recession, both in the labour market, compounded by some of the changes in the tax and benefit system, although um, helped, actually, by um, the um, increase in personal allowance, for instance, without being, having enough children to be, for that to be offset by some of the tax credit cuts, but hit really hard by um, the increase in, in the cost of housing. Um, so that's one side of it, by people being hit badly by the recession, um, but also the pattern of austerity um, that the previous government and, and the current government have been following um, has hit the young, generally speaking, harder than the old. So uh, certainly over the coalition period, school funding was protected. That's getting a little um, less protected now. But cuts in child benefit, cuts in um, educational maintenance allowances, cuts in big cuts, Georgia will probably tell you more about that, in youth provision. Um, so for, for children, um, things reduced and therefore for their parents. For people of working age, um, higher income tax allowances in terms of improving their position, but the real action in the tax and social security system on working age benefits switch to, child pov- to, to um, um, consumer price index indexation, uh, indexation rather than the, re- the, the RPI, three years of real cuts, freezes in child benefit, um, cuts, uh, limits put on housing benefits, 
um, cuts in council tax benefit, um, tougher student loan repayments, a whole series of things, contrasting with what, how austerity hit older people with, again, I mean, the, um, the, the position in the last year or so is, is, has changed, but, but with the NHS being more protected than anything else, with state pensions being improved, um, with things like winter fuel payments, free bus passes, um, I have one in my pocket, um, and so on, um, being protected, against which, of course, um, in particular the cuts in social care um, at the time when demand was, was rising, and you know, the age allowance, I think everybody will remember George Osborne's um, um, granny tax um, when, when the special age allowance was abolished, um, meaning that older people got less benefit from the rising tax allowances. Um, and, of course, I mean, maybe I put this as the, uh, for the older people, really it affects the younger generation, the, the higher pension, state pension ages coming in, in, to my mind, a logical response to growing longevity, um, but, but something that means some, there's a group of people who are getting their pensions later, particularly a group of women um, born in, in 1954 um, who've had a very big change in their pension age. So, yes, austerity has hit, hit the young people of working age, but remember we will all, I hope, be older um, one day. And therefore, as we move through our lives... Um, we will be paying in, but then we will receive the benefits of the health service and pensions and so on in the future. Um, so it may all come out in the end. Now, this is some rather elderly work that I did, which I'm very much hoping that the um, staff working for the commission will be updating. It's just looking at how much, in one simple way of looking at it, each generation paid in towards the welfare state and how much it got out of it. So... In green, you've got a measure of how much each five-year age cohort got out of it, and in um, red, how much they paid into it through the tax system towards it. And you see the people born right at the beginning were gainers from this. They were at the beginning of the game. Um, uh, on the other hand, they, they lived through two world wars, so why not? There's a generation born in the 1920s, 30s, um, much less of a gain, and then the projections I was making um, quite some time ago suggesting that people born the baby boomers would end up as gainers from this. And that, that's before our life expectancy went up, um, preceding and, and, and therefore getting pensions before state pension age started going up. My forecast, and this will have changed in various ways, was that um, it, would, um, it would come back into balance for younger generations. Um, they might also make a slight gain. But the point about this is really that all of these numbers are very close to one another. That in the end, and unless there's something completely unstable going on, in the end these numbers do, if you're prepared to wait long enough, they will balance out. As long as we keep running a system where effectively the working age population pays and disproportionately the older um, population gain, that will all average out um, in the end, rather than being a big change. So that, that shift we see in terms of immediate support for, for younger people and the protection of older people, it may be, if that is preserved, it will still kind of come out in a balanced way in the end. So that's something, exactly what's happening with, with the cuts and austerity and how that plays between generations, I think, is yet to be seen. But I want to end on something which David referred to through throwing up the slide on 
um, on um, home ownership. Um, so this is, this is, these are numbers from the Wealth, Wealth and Assets Survey. These are for household wealth. They're for about, around about 2011. And they're the middle wealth, the median wealth of people with a household reference person of a particular age. So the, the point to note are um, the baby boomers, David and me, with a median wealth um, of £420,000. Now, it's including not just the house, but also the value of pension rights and financial assets. And um, contrast that with people aged around 30 um, with net wealth um, of around 55000 per household. So you know, this follows a life cycle pattern. People save, they pay off their mortgages, they accumulate pension rights, so we would expect it to follow a life cycle pattern. The difficulty with this is just the scale of what this now looks like, given what's happened to house prices. So some of you have heard me talk about this before. So you will know, those of you who are 30, that all you have to do to get from here to there is to save £33 a day, each and every day for the next 30 years. And we also know that that generation is not saving by comparison with people, the previous generations, who were at the same age saving. So it seems unlikely that through their own capacity to save, a median person, a typical person, a typical household, will actually be able to bridge that gap and end up with the same wealth as their parents. Now, however, that's just the median, that's just the middle there is a spread around this, and if I just want to leave you with one point, really, it's that there is a very big spread, and that it's, I think, only talking about part of the picture if you contrast the baby boomers with the um, squeezed generation, with the, um, um, <clears throat> with, with, the, with the generation that's lost out. Because within each generation, there are very big differences. So the top 10%, the purple line here is showing the 90th percentile. So 10% of the 55 to 64-year-olds are above 1.4 million at this point, including their pension rights. On the other hand, 10% um, virtually nothing and 30% um, um, uh, and, and below 200,000. So there's a huge spread within those generations. And really what I want to leave you with is the implications of this for the future. Because this wealth is not, by and large, going to disappear. The, the pension rights will disappear, because we'll have used them up. Um, but the rest of the wealth will not disappear. So this wealth here in the top half of people now in their 80s will relatively soon be cascading down, possibly via the baby boomers, to some of the younger generation. You know, the houses will not dematerialise the financial assets. By and large, won't all be spent um, on cruises. Um, it will come down to the next generation. But what's happened, and those of you who've heard Tom Piketty talk about, about this, will realise that the central part of what he talks about is that the big, big change in many Western economies has been the increase in the ratio between personal wealth and income which means that this is a much bigger deal than it used to be. Now, just think about it this way. If you are 
one of a small number of grandchildren of two households who are owners in the southeast or London, there is a good chance that you will be inheriting at some point a million pounds. Quite easily, people can be can some of these people will, will be inheriting a million pounds. That is 40 years of earnings at the median wage. So we're moving to a situation which we're, we're unused to, which we didn't see before, where there are some people who will, and some people will get more than that, will be inheriting a lifetime's earnings, and others won't. So it's that, I think, wicked um, uh, uh, coming together of not just the intergenerational inequality, but the intragenerational inequality and the way that this will be transmitted by unequal inheritance that seems to me to encapsulate um, a huge challenge um, for thinking about these problems. Okay. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you, John. Georgia, uh, Georgia Gould, who is a councillor for the Kentish Town Ward in Camden. Over to you. Well, I don't have any slides for you, and I didn't bring my book to wave about, but I'm not going to, to, to use this as an excuse for intergenerational warfare. Um, I am a Labour councillor. I am also 30 years old, so I think that makes me a middle-aged millennial. Um, and when I tell people that I am a councillor, their first reaction is, oh, that's wonderful, you do such important work. And I realise that they think that I'm a therapist, and I have to be like, oh, no, sorry, I'm, I'm not that kind of counsellor, I'm a labour counsellor. And you can see them literally start to back away and, and, and try and talk to someone else. Or they talk to me about uh, rubbish collection or dog mess, um, which are big, crucially important issues, of course. Uh, but they're not all that local councils do, and I have the great privilege and responsibility for looking after a lot of Camden Council's people-based services, so our older people services and our younger people services. So I kind of live the uh, distribution of resources in my work every day. Um, I also do a lot of research and writing and campaigning about youth issues. I spent two years travelling around the country talking to thousands of young people and trying to look at some of the, the issues that we've just had laid out to us through the lens of young people's perspective. Um, and during that process, I think I, I felt very strongly at the end of it that we were letting down the next generation, that I didn't think that policymakers were really... Uh, to taking into account the, the challenges that young people faced. I felt that we were unfairly stigmatising young people, uh, and I felt that their voices were being lost in the policy debate, and, and none more so than disadvantaged young people who were almost completely silent uh, in the political debate. Um, and I was actually speaking to David recently um, for a, a programme he was doing, and I was, I was putting forth my view that actually I think we need to look at some of our pensioner universal benefits um, and look at, at and think very carefully about, uh, about uh, moving away from some of those universal benefits um, and investing in uh, vulnerable older people through adult social care services and investing in the next generation. And, and David asked me, do you think that could ever be um, an election-winning proposition? 
uh, which obviously as somebody who seeks to get elected, I think is, a, is an excellent question and one that, that I think about a lot. And I was thinking about as I, as I spoke to a room of pensioners recently who were a wonderful, lively group, but were literally uh, shaking their walking sticks at me <laughs> at the idea of touching their universal uh, benefits. And obviously, I would like to protect universal benefits for older people uh, and introduce them for younger people. But this is not the world we live in. We live in a a world of reduced resources. And it it reminds me of of sitting around the table at at council trying to do this process of outcomes-based budgeting where we're thinking about the cuts we're going to make. We've lost half our discretionary budget in Camden. And we go around the room and and one colleague says, well, yeah, we can't cut uh, waste anymore. You know, people will go mad. And somebody else says, no, we can't cut uh, libraries. We definitely can't do that. And you can't cut community safety, domestic violence. These are such important issues. And I say, well, we, you know, demographic demand. We need more money for adult social care. And look, young people, they're our future. We so many disadvantaged young people. We have to invest in them. And we get to the end and we're like, oh, we can't cut anything. Um, and yet we have millions to save. Um, and, and that's the position we're in. And when, when as policymakers, we're, we're faced with these pressures, people end up listening to the voters. And the voters um, are, are older people. There's a demographic um, uh, pressure, a group, bulge of older people, as I think David's slide showed, that have huge electoral weight. But also they're far more likely to vote, to engage in the political process. They're the people that turn up to, to my surgeries, to protest at council meetings. And so they, they have a lot of weight in decision-making. And I think this, this situation that I think we just saw through John's presentation is very influenced by, by this political pressure. And I think it's only going to get worse because we have not, as a country, worked out how we're going to care for our older people. We absolutely haven't. And we've got a huge crisis in adult social care. We, we think that we need $2.8 billion urgently just to go into the system. We've got millions of people who actually aren't getting the support that they should. Um, people aren't saving themselves for it. They don't know that they have to. Um, we're, the deal not uh, changes seem to have kind of gone into the, to the long grass. And, we, uh, and government doesn't seem to have a plan. Um, and this is just going to be a huge pressure for our society, and we just haven't worked out what we're going to do about it. Meanwhile, councils are around the country cutting youth services. They've been absolutely decimated. In many parts of the country, there's nothing left to support disadvantaged young people. And the human cost and the waste of that potential, um, young people who desperately want to get in, who've had traumatic starts, uh, in, in order to support any kind of social mobility, we need to be investing in those young people. Um, and, and I think we're seeing a kind of similar decision-makings uh, at the, the national level. So I think that we need to have a genuine cross-party uh, conversation, an honest conversation about how we spend money, the distribution of resources in this country, how we're going to fund adult social care, um, what, we're, what kind of taxation we are prepared um, to put up with. For me, I think we need to have a real conversation about ta- looking at taxing assets um, in a more fundamental way, as well as income, thinking about the intergenerational transfer of income. But this has to be a, a real honest conversation that people, that people are part of. And one of the things I think we, we could and should do is have civic panels that bring the generations together to look, to look at the real choices uh, in front of us. Because if I have elderly people shaking their walking sticks um, at me here and young people literally crying because of the, the cuts in services over here and not hearing each other and not talking to each other... And, um, it's another conversation, but I think the breakdown between generations is one of the huge issues we face as a country, then we won't get anywhere. So I do think that we need to, we need to have a really 
public conversation about this, but government has to invest in that public conversation. And I'm glad that the Resolution Foundation is leading this piece of work because I think that that starts off um, that public debate. I think some of the other things we need to look at are house building, uh, freeing up local authorities um, to borrow and to invest in housing, and new new forms of housing which have uh, affordable rent for young people and support them. Um, and I think we need to look at some of the, the ways we can bring generations together, you know, uh, schemes like sharing lives where, where uh, young people live in some of the spare rooms of older people. There's some amazing schemes in Holland where generations live together which can, can work uh, very well. Um, and I just want to finish my comments by, by some reflections from, from my research and when I went around the country talking to young people. I absolutely did find all the challenges that I think John was talking about, young people who had applied for hundreds of jobs and not got anywhere, who had gone to university but were stuck in what they low-paid jobs they felt they didn't study for, were trapped by housing and couldn't move to where the opportunities were, um, and that, that great waste of potential. And then some people who just felt just completely lost uh, and let down by the system. But I didn't find a generation that would describe themselves as a stagnant generation or a lost generation or these kind of times that we talk about people. I found uh, young people who were incredibly entrepreneurial, aspirational for themselves, very, very individualistic with uh, the negative and positives of that, but who had the big dreams and desires for themselves, even the most disadvantaged young people. Um, and I think we need to kind of remember that there is a huge amount of opportunity and energy and creativity that we're missing out from our public debate um, and, and grasp that opportunity uh, before it's too late. Thank you. Thank you, Georgia. Now, uh, Omar Khan, who is the director of the Runnymede Trust and sits on the DWP's Ethnic Minority Employment Stakeholder Group. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm going to discuss uh, racial inequalities and the effects also of uh, the demographic change that we've seen in Britain that uh, David started to allude to. Uh, in 1971, there were one million black and minority ethnic people living in Britain, uh, less than around uh, 2% of the population. So when the baby boomers were at school doing their GCSEs, it was quite unlikely, actually, that they knew many black and minority ethnic colleagues. Uh, today, it's 8 million black and minority ethnic people, so eight times as many. So in 40 years, we see that uh, increase to 14%. And we've done some projections suggesting that by 2051, uh, there will be 19 million and around 25 to 30% of the population will be black and minority ethnic in 2051. So I'm going to try to explain the relevance for that for this debate on intergenerational fairness, uh, highlighting first some demographic and sort of data around racial inequalities. Uh, second, uh, how that adds additional issues to the intergenerational fairness question around uh, fairness across uh, ethnic groups and how we respond to racial inequality in our society. And finally, um, how could policy respond, which I think Georgia was starting to, to, to highlight there. Um, so I, I've sort of highlighted those high-level uh, um, changes over time. And the effect of that is if you think about Windrush as this sort of moment where the post-war uh, migration started, that was 1948. So that's the first generation that you can talk about black and minority ethnic-born Brit British people as opposed to migrants, although, of course, much, much of that generation who are born in the Caribbean or in South Asia have, of course, now got British citizenship, and those, those people are now 68 years old. If you look at the 75-plus population, it's only 4% BME, whereas if you look at the under-13 population, it's a quarter, 25% are black and minority ethnic in that population. The median age for white British people is 42 years old. And the median age for mixed people, 
is 18. So when we're talking about intergenerational fairness, we're also talking about groups that are much more diverse. But it also raises the question of if young people are disproportionately more likely to be black and minority ethnic, but also if black and minority ethnic people are more likely to be young, any inequalities or any unfairness that we're creating in, in terms of generational unfairness is also increasing racial inequalities as well. And it adds to the pressure, I think, if, if the potential for conflict and the sort of dangerousness of that conflict if we don't attend to that. Median age for Bangladeshi is 24, for Pakistani is 25, and for black African is 28. Um, and the only group where you see uh, age profile pr approaching the white British is the black Caribbean one, which still has a lower median age of 40. The other thing, which is somewhat contrary, although confirms a bit the, the, the sort of uh, statistics you, uh, that we've seen, is actually older black and minority ethnic people are actually not so well off. The baby boomers within that population have not had that same exact tra trajectory. Uh, first of all, they experienced discrimination in the labor market, uh, would have seen no blacks, no dogs, no Irish signs in the 1960s, of course, which were legal until the 1968 Race Relations Act. So that generation didn't accumulate income and assets to the same degree as their white British counterparts. So if you look at median asset holdings, for example, it's 220,000 for white British, but 15 to 20,000 for Bangladeshi and black African, 76,000 for black Caribbean. So the, the issue of intergenerational fairness has a, has a sharp end on the younger population, but it's also got a sharp end on the older population. And in some ways, actually, there's not an intergenerational problem here. There's a, a racial inequality problem here. Every generation of black and minority ethnic Britons faces an inequality vis-a-vis -vis its counterpart in the white British population. So older uh, black and minority ethnic workers uh, or, uh, who are now retiring, uh, people in their 40s and 50s, or people in, uh, in their 20s. So, for example, we see uh, Pensioner poverty is much higher. Uh, we see also, though, that uh, when you look at university graduates, that uh, four years on from graduation, Chinese graduates who do the best at GCSE outperforming their white British counterparts uh, earn less money. And so those racial inequalities are not, are not uh, in addition to the inequalities that we're seeing intergenerationally. Um, and I, what I wanted to raise here is this raises issues also then, I think, of, of integration. Um, if it's the case, I mean, I've sometimes heard policymakers talk about immigration or the sort of increase of black and minority ethnic people as a way to fund universal pension policies. And I think this is extremely dangerous if it's done in a sort of crass way, which is, is something I've heard more, um, I, won't, I, won't, I, won't, I won't name names, but policymakers saying things like, well, you know, one of the reasons we need a larger young working age immigration policy is because we need to be able to fund those pensions. And if there's no promise that those universal pensions will remain for that population when they're older, or if there's no commitment to those migrants that they will be able to retain residency long-term in Britain, I think it's quite a, a, a sort of very short-term and uh, dangerous policy objective. Rather, we need to think about ensuring that all um, people, uh, that all, all workers do, in fact, have those benefits, those universal benefits later on. Otherwise, as I suggest, the intergenerational potential for the potential for intergenerational conflict will also become a potential uh, ethnic uh, racial conflict, which would be obviously something we want to avoid. So, how could we then avoid that? I think one of the one of the sort of the two main arguments I want to make here is first we need to attend to racial inequalities within each generation. So, whether it's older populations, uh, current working age populations, or younger populations, 
but I think the second is, again, something that George has already highlighted. We need to think about what kinds of policies we can uh, develop and implement that benefit younger populations so that they have uh, greater assets. This will reduce racial inequality. So a, a policy that reduces intergenerational unfairness will also reduce racial inequalities. One example might be things like a child trust fund, which actually would disproportionately benefit um, black and minority ethnic people insofar as it goes to every single child born in Britain, not just to British citizens. And that could be funded, for example, through an asset, uh, asset tax, a uh, saving uh, wealth tax. Um, and I think in terms of thinking more long-term about whatever reforms happen in the state pension, I think you know, we need to think through what those will mean for uh, future workers as well and try to make those commitments and promises to the next generation as soon as we can. Finally, I think there are some things that can be done that are a little bit softer, um, kind of on the sort of community integration front, that are, are being trialed and that could be done more. So, for example, I don't know if some of you may have heard of the Good Gym, which is a kind of charity that encourages uh, people to go running, and rather than paying a gym membership fee, they sort of go and uh, have befriending services with older people or help to clean up a park. So a group of people go for a run, and at the end of that run, they might bring a pint of milk to an older person and have a conversation with that person, both to combat loneliness but also to encourage intergenerational interactions. Um, I think another interesting case that we don't talk about enough is one of the most common spaces where we see both intergenerational but also inter-ethnic interaction that otherwise uh, might not happen is actually social care. If you look at the number of people who are migrants who are in social care, I mean, I think there's a lot. Age UK could, for example, run a campaign where they had sort of older white British people saying, you know, my care worker has been great for me. They help clean my, my house. They, feed, uh, uh, they help uh, cook my food. And without them, um, I would have a much worse life. And I think things like that we also need to think through. So in addition to the hard redistributive uh, policies that I think we need to consider much more, I think we could also think about those sorts of policies to try to bring both generations but also ethnic groups together. Thanks. And now we're going to hear from Nona Buckley-Irvin, a Labour Party activist in Sussex, former General Secretary of the LSE Students' Union. Hello. Just keep this up. So, um, I think there's some really great contributions made there that's sort of touched on a lot of points that I'd like to... Uh, return to first before going on to what I'm going to talk about mainly, which is education. But um, first of all, in, in defense of the older generations, um, before I go on, <laughs> uh, I think what's interesting about the work of the Resolution Foundation is that they highlighted how um, Generation X had the highest levels of inequality to date under reforms by Margaret Thatcher, um, council house ownership um, being taken up by the middle classes. And I think... What we see today with our generation is that inequality has been largely reproduced um, by that system. And so there is a lot of ageism in today's society, which I think uh, working class, older people feel a lot more. So just to, just to bear that in mind, they're, they're also not a homogenous group. Um, I think we talked about the, a lot about the economics, but what I'm interested in um, from my perspective, so I'm from Crawley in Sussex, um, we have really high levels of inequality. One side of the town uh, has a 10-year life expectancy gap with the other side of the town. One side of the town has um, 
levels of participation in higher education of one, which is the lowest, uh, whilst the other uh, is five, which is the highest. So it's a really divided town, and that's really informed how I've thought about politics, how young people can access it, because similarly in my town, young people aren't engaged in conversations, and the education system is a large part of why there is such great inequality and a real lack of social mobility. Um, but in politics... Uh, young people are massively underrepresented and um, I think what was highlighted earlier is that a lot of the reforms that have been pushed through that have ultimately cut things for young people uh, have come from the Tory party. I'm not here to be party political <laughs> but it's not necessarily in their interests uh, to be pushing through pro-young people policies because young people don't tend to vote or vote Conservative. Um, there's lots of reasons for that. Um, and so I feel like the positional power in politics is a real in, intergenerational issue, actually, and the sort of failure of politicians to really try and engage young people in decision-making processes is something that we need to think about when we do talk about these issues, because if it continues to be people of an older calibre talking about young people... We're never going to get to the heart of what it is like to be a young person, what it is like to be experiencing these different things, and also really harness the diversity of young people today. Um, I'm really pleased that race equality was brought up too because um, there are massive differences between groups uh, in society today for young people. Um, in higher education, there's an attainment gap of up to about 35% between black and white students. And nationally, it's also very high. Um, I think it was um, in the latest... Some, there's been some latest data that's shown a young Pakistani woman graduating from university is expected to earn substantially less than a, a white uh, British graduate. And so there's also lots of differences there, which I think are highlights of the class system. So... Those are just some thoughts, and one of the key issues that I found is the way that old people, older people have made... Uh, God, going into my ageism now. Um, <laughs> um, older people have made these decisions that have really affected young people. So young people um, have experienced high levels of anxiety now, whether you be in university or not. Um, I've done some research with uh, Ravensbourne College, which is a higher, edu higher education college, which gets lots of young people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And their experience is really interesting because it's marked by such high levels of anxiety of wanting to achieve because they've got these high tuition fees which were introduced and they want to get value for money and they want to be employable. Um, with the introduction of tuition fees, and I'm not here to advocate for free education or anything like that, but there has been a substantial impact on uh, social mobility for students or just meant that it hasn't moved anywhere at all. So there are less part-time students who are typically widening participation students uh, where university funding has been cut. Um, lots of institutions, such as the LSE, are using accommodation fees to subsidise that. Accommodation fees are then high for... Um, people from lower socioeconomic groups, and they can't access those places. So one of the key impacts of the tuition fee reforms hasn't necessarily been that lots less students are going to university, but it's that they're choosing to live closer to home. So if you're living in Liverpool, a poor, deprived area, you're more likely to go to the University of Liverpool rather than moving down to London, where you've got to pay, like, £12,000 a year. Um, 
And there's been very little to change the diversity in the Russell Group um, since all these reforms. It, it just hasn't changed the diversity. And unfortunately, the Russell Group is a key vehicle for social mobility um, because of more people going to university, employers have sought to find ways to discriminate uh, different degrees and they, they tend to pick the Russell Group. Um, so I feel like while we're not necessarily here to talk about intergenerational justice, I feel the link between intergenerational and intergenerational is that the political dis impact of these decisions being made has had a real terms impact on the student's social mobility and we really need to redress that. Um, there hasn't been enough focus on students not going to university and again that comes from the fact that the government doesn't need to invest in, in these things because young people aren't voting anymore. Um, I've got a sort of wish list for young people uh, that have come up, well it's, it's one thing, but um, it's not free education but what we need as a policy suggestion is massive investment in education that's not politicised anymore because it's been incredibly politicised. Um, I was really lucky actually because I was the last year of fees um, that were £3,000 um, but since then and I also um, did A-levels when it was, um, you could do your AS and A2. But now young people, they're on, under high pressure to complete exams um, at the end of their two years and also to pay these fees. So my wish would be rethink the higher education strategy but also think about how you can fit young people who don't go into university into that. Um, think about repositioning London because the London factor does actually have a substantial impact on young people. Uh, because young people from poorer backgrounds can't access London as a source of employability. And above and beyond all, I think uh, the main thing is to make sure that young people actually have a voice in politics, and that doesn't mean creating consultative groups. It means actually deselect Jeremy Corbyn and get a young, young person in there. He's held on the seat for ages. I don't actually mean that. But, um, <laughs> but I think about it a lot. There's these MPs that have had their seats for, like, 40 years, and that means that a young person can't come in and represent their community. No new ideas can come through that way. And that's not fair. How can you have a job for that long that only one person can have? Um, so mass deselections is also <laughs> a policy suggestion. No, really not. And I am Labour. Sorry, Jeremy. Um, but yeah, so I think... Term limits, that's what you can call it. Term limits. Um, but yeah, my, my main message is that... Um, Education is an example where young people aren't socially mobile. And if we're talking about things like um, invest, uh, uh, investments being passed down between generations, one way to compensate for that is to actually make sure that young people can move, move up the ladder and earn higher salaries than they can't right now. Um, so, yeah, those are just a few thoughts. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a Tory chief whip who got into terrible trouble for talk, calling some of his colleagues bed blockers. <laughs> uh, back into that um, I would love to respond to some of the comments on higher education. I would say that wasn't that, a criticism of you. But, but. Yeah, right, no, but I think probably we should hear a wider range of intergenerational issues, and perhaps that might come up in the exchange. But let's hear from you guys, and if you want to give your name and organisation. Let's collect some comments or observations or questions. And we've got two roving mics. Yes, gentlemen there. Uh, 
So I'm Anthony Mason from the Intergenerational Foundation. Um, I, I would just like, the, could the panel address this question of uh, student fees, mm. please, um, in, in terms of the effect that's having on uh, the stagnation of the younger generation? Um, you, I know that has, has been addressed by the speakers a bit, but not really, to my view, fully. So it would be interesting to hear your individual views about that, please. Okay, well, I will... Let's hear from the other panellists first. Why well, do you want to start? Why don't you start? Uh, I don't... Yeah, I think I'll let others comment on this one. All right. I mean, I, I think the only thing I wanted to... I mean, the one thing about... Um, once you start to introduce fees, there's the, obviously the notion of the return on your education. And if 40% of black African graduates are in a graduate job three years after graduation and 20% of white graduates are not in a graduate job, then maybe black African graduates should pay 6000 instead of 9000 So I think <laughs> once you start introducing those sorts of questions about labor market return, uh, I think the other thing that's important to reflect on in this context is the fact that so many black and minority ethnic students don't go to Russell Group. Um, so uh, about four or five years ago, the stat will have changed now, but there were more black students at London Met than there were at the entirety of the Russell Group combined. So I think it does uh, pose a challenge for those students who go through those higher education routes, and I, especially when you look at their incomes. Not, not, um, so, so I do have some concerns, especially with the higher education bill sort of flagging the possibility of closing certain institutions, um, that the kinds of institutions that have been the lever of higher education for ethnic minorities and other working class communities may be under some pressure. Um, and with employers not recognizing those qualifications, I, I think it'd be, when we're looking at the effects, I think we should be looking at it by different kinds of university and by different, but hopefully that's the positive, is that now these data are coming out. And I think the one positive of the higher education reforms is increased data to know more about what kinds of degrees actually end up being um, good for earnings and good for social mobility longer term. I'll leave it at that. Georgia? Yeah, I think for me, the, the, actually the big gap and the big issue has been the total lack of investment in the young people who don't go to university. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've had a system for a long time that young people are doing courses that just don't have any value in the labour market, that there hasn't been proper investment in training, that if that actually that stops um, at 24 and if young people have been let down by the education system, which I think a lot of young people have, and, um, and the lack of support um, outside of school, that's, that's why we've been terrible in this country and those are the young people that I'd like to see us investing in. I think that um, I actually think that like some level of, um, of, of a, a loan-based system for those young people that can afford it is... is is fair enough as long as you have bursaries and support for those young people mm -hmm. that can't um, and, and proper investment in those young people that don't go to university. John? Well, first of all, let me start by defending David. Um, so the fee increases are not upfront fees. They are repaid through um, a system which is dependent on people's future mm -hmm. earnings. So a defend, the defense of that system is that it is a way of extracting money from the people who are in, going to end up as the best off, they're likely to end up as the best off amongst their particular generation. So the, the whole idea of income contingent loans and the increase in fees 
was it was a way of redressing some of the inter intragenerational um, imbalance between um, the kind of people in my generation who had not just a, f- a free first degree but also were financed to do a master's degree, um, who end up with no debt uh, but with a very large amount of mon- public money spent on us. Um, so the idea of the system was to offset, and the deal was. We have a political consensus, not just New Labour, but however one would have described the Conservative Party at the time, that the solution to all our problems is higher levels of qualifications. And that generation we've been talking about did all the right thing. As well as that generation having lost, those born in the 1980s, um, having lost the most from the recession, they are the best qualified generation ever. They've done all the right things and yet are not seeing that payoff, certainly in the first 10 years, in their earnings that was extrapolated from previous, uh, the the graduate premium in in previous generations. Now, yes, of course, uh, we can, I think, defend the system by saying, um, but if you don't earn very much, you won't pay very much back. And indeed, a lot of people, and the higher fees go, the more more this, this happens, a lot of this will be written off. But it's still a debt. It's still a constraint on how much the generation that will have the £27,000 worth of of fee debt can then borrow on a mortgage. And so if you combine that with the home ownership numbers, the wealth numbers, it is another twist of the relative advantage of some people within the cohort who can cope with that and can look forward to inheritances that will help them with the deposits and so on. Um, so there was a strong logic to the way we, we change things. Um, but it has, and, and it does not have the effect of US-type mortgage loans, but it still has an effect in terms of, of the, the, I think what Georgia was describing, in terms of the high anxiety, so that the, we all know that, there are, that, that this, the educational system has high stakes in it. And a lot of what we've been putting up is an increase in the level of those stakes. Um, and it's just another twist in that, that if you have got the, this debt, it's hanging over you, that then affects um, the way that you behave. However much people like me say that, yes, but it's income contingent, you won't have to pay if you don't earn anything. And Dame, don't you think that in the LSE, <laughs> given the likely prospects of people who've graduated from the LSE, expecting mm. graduates from the LSE, if they end up in a well-paid job, obviously not if they don't, to pay back for the cost of education but not pay up front, is actually socially progressive? In theory. Uh-huh. Um, so oh, there's, there's so many thoughts. I'll try and keep it yeah, right. brief. But um, I think the first assumption with that's sort of made with the loan system now is that it's fair because you pay it back when you, you pay it back afterwards. So it's not a burden on those who don't go to university. But one of the big issues is actually the pay differential between people um, who've already come from middle class backgrounds and then go to university still remains high between those who've come from poorer backgrounds. So there hasn't been enough action to actually try and reduce that at an earlier stage. Um, and then I also think, so on, on the student loans and how it works and everything, to defend David, um, there have been changes 
since he passed the reforms to introduce the tuition fees, so things like interest rates have gone up, um, and so they've calculated that actually, like richer student, richer graduates will um, pay off their loan quicker and end up paying up. Uh, less overall than someone who's got to pay it for the whole 30 years and has the interest rates on top of it. And that's been something that's done fairly rec- been done fairly recently by the government. But um, I think the thing is, you can rationalise it however much you want about you only pay it back when you start earning, but people don't think like that. And people don't like, f- from where I'm from, um, my parents were really invested in education, and so that was great. But um, uh, parents want their young people to be going to work they don't see why they should be going to university they don't want they didn't like it when um they increased the school age um to 18 and you you can't you just can't get around it it's it's just not going to change there have been impacts as well Um, part-time students have gone down mature students have gone down um so there has been an impact and actually there's been um 7,000 less 18 year olds applying according to the latest UCAS data so that so we might there might be a longer term impact that we're yet to see but um I, I think there is a massive issue with and actually going back to labor I, I think they ma- made a massive error saying that 50 percent of people should go to university because it said an arbitrary figure that was privileging university over other alternative routes such as vocational education um, and going into work straight away and that's been something that's really distorted how we look at education for quite a long time let me make a few brief comments and then we should move on i mean i think in terms of actually the challenge that nona put in her comment in her talk um, you were lucky to have been when resources when it, the fee was 3k not 9k mm. I actually think that coming in the later regime is a better deal than the, other, than the previous regime and I'll give you two reasons the first is actually one of the reasons for doing this was to boost the resource behind each undergraduate at university it was actually to in the time of austerity that the, that the, if you are getting £9,000 worth of money spent on your education that is significantly more than the old fee of 3000 plus the Hefke grant, especially, I have to say, if you were in the humanities and social sciences. So the aim was that there should be... We wanted universities to focus more on teaching, and you couldn't win that argument, and at first of all, you gave them more resource to do it. Secondly, the repayment threshold, of course, has gone up. Now, it's true, the total amount you'll repay during your working life is greater, but when I talk to the mortgage, mortgage lenders and the banks, what they look at, not that this is a debt, because it's not like a credit card debt or a, mm. or a mortgage. It's much more like a 29% rate of income tax above a certain threshold. They look at your fixed outgoings. And your fixed monthly outgoings on 9% of a threshold that was originally 15, it's probably gone up to about 18 by now. Your monthly outgoings as a graduate are greater than the monthly outgoings will be of the later generations of graduates because the repayment threshold is so much higher. And I was actually partly, because of the pressures on people in their 20s and 30s, I actually thought the previous system was too front-end loaded. It was a lot of money you were paying back in the early stages of adulthood, and then most people had paid it off by their 30s or 40s. So admittedly it's more in total, but it's also, for any given income a significantly lower fixed payment than it was. And two final comments. I think that the... I don't agree with you about the 50%, actually, although I don't think government should set overall targets. I want to see more people go to university. And I think all the evidence 
I'm sitting next to the expert. Well, all the evidence, if you look at advantage or disadvantage, life expectancy, opportunity, health, it all tells me that the best single driver we've got is going to university. The latest Robert Putnam book on our kids, almost every axis, every graph in his book that shows a widening gap in America compares graduates and non-graduates. And whilst going to university is heavily dependent on public expenditure, governments are going to ration places. When you make it a graduate repayment scheme, you cease having control over numbers, which is what we did in 2013, as a result of which there are more people going to university, which I personally think is a good thing. And finally, I would accept that other sort of baked-in inequalities, of course, still exist amongst graduates. I think one of the great things about universities is it's one of the flu, it's the only stage of education where, depending on how you measure it, if anything, disadvantaged students do slightly better than the average. Where kids from, dis, certainly from the lowest quintile areas, outperform for any given prior attainment kids from the most affluent areas. So going to university is an opportunity for the more disadvantaged to surge ahead. However, absolutely, it is very frustrating that after they've had this opportunity, you then find back out in the jobs market, for any given level of final attainment at university, people from poorer backgrounds or some ethnic groups then underperform again. And I I used to have conversations with Les Ebden on Office for Access saying to Les, as part of the access agreements that universities have to write and to agree with you, can't we get them to do more at looking at outcomes? And the legal framework within which he was working, it's no criticism of labour because the issue then was getting in, he basically was requiring universities to look at how they could recruit more people from disadvantaged backgrounds. So I'd say to him, can't you encourage universities to run a scheme for covering the accommodation costs of a second-year student during their summer holidays, staying in London to do an unpaid internship if they, can't, if they don't live in London? That would be a fantastic thing to do to help with the labour market. That appeared to be beyond the legal framework of what could be required. And one of the things in the legislation currently going through the House is to extend offers remit so that he can require and look for that kind of intervention by a university so it doesn't just focus on getting people in. So uh, there are still challenges, but I personally, of course I would say this, I think that the university's minister can defend his policies to the author of the pinch. Now, who's got the next question? And we must have a, we must have a yes, the lady up towards the back there. In fact, as I see several hands up, let's collect... Several interventions, starting from the lady there, and then we'll go across uh, to this side. Yep. Hi, my name is Rhys. I work for a charity called Unlocking Potential, which works with disadvantaged young people. Um, I'm just wondering why this panel is focused so much on higher education and higher education funding. I mean, if we're also interested in intra-generational fairness... Everyone from all social backgrounds uses early years and primary school. Why don't we focus a bit more on ironing out the funding discrepancies in that domain before we just sort of laser in and focus just on university, which not every young person uses? Right. Chinese focus on something else. Then there was a guy there. Yep. Hi, I'm Joshua. I'm a student here at the LSE. 
So I, what do you think of the idea that there are certain issues that older people should potentially not be allowed to vote on? Or <laughs> certain yeah, issues like where younger, you, people, younger people could perhaps have a more heavily weighted vote? Right. Um, especially issues that really relate to the, f- the future of the country. And, and secondly, <laughs> <laughs> my future, uh, <laughs> that, uh, related to the, the last point about higher education fees, how many of the less young people in this room who were given free education would be willing to chip in a bit towards the younger people's education in a sort of backdated payment? That, that seems like it could be quite fair. <laughs> Gentleman there, yep, a few rows ahead. Hello, I'm Vincent Tang. I work at the Treasury. Um, Professor Hills, uh, you mentioned or you showed that every generation has taken out more than it's put into the Exchequer. Um, what are the, to what extent uh, is this fiscally sustainable, given the kind of public debt that's built up and must be paid down by future generations? And secondly, to what extent can we grow our way out of this problem through, say, high productivity? Thanks. Right. Let's take those three. And you don't have to answer every question. John, why don't you start with, with one for you? Okay. Um, it's perfectly possible within a pay-as-you-go system for one generation to be paying in... Um, <clears throat> sorry, for, for the first generation to be getting out more than it's paid in. Um, and then each subsequent generation to be paying for its parents, but then expecting to receive something back effectively from the children's generation. And if that's, if that's not explosive, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't keep going. I mean, what I was, when I, the, the numbers I, I did um, now 15 or more years ago, um, suggested that there was an early generation that gained from the welfare state starting and not having to pay for very much welfare state for their, for their own parents and grandparents. And then it was balanced, and then there is, but it would be interesting to see whether the numbers still look like this, a lucky generation that got quite a lot of the benefits of the expansion of the size of the welfare state without having had to pay so much earlier on. It was looking at the stage I was doing those numbers as if for later generations it would stabilise again. Um, and I don't see any reason why that shouldn't continue. It's not as if we're hypothesising that... Um, we're going to do something like, um, like, like no longer have any children. Uh, if that happened, then we would have a problem, and the problem would be on the currently working age generation, not on the older generation. Um, so I think it is sustainable, as long as it doesn't explode, and as long as nobody turn, turns around and says, we're going to stop this now, that we're no longer going to have a pay-as-you-go system where everybody's going to fund themselves. Um, that, that would mean that there's one generation that's paying for its parents, um, but isn't going to get anything. Well, it has to entirely save for itself. Yeah. So you can keep this going. Um, just quickly on the, on, on the other point, why, why don't we focus on higher education? Because the first question was about higher, higher education. Um, but let's let me focus on the why not more on the on the early years. Absolutely. But remember all of those income differentials and those wealth differentials that I was pointing out feed through the entire young life cycle at every stage from 0 to 5, from 5 to 11, 11 to 16, and then actually staying on and going on um, to university afterwards. So, yes, we can focus on what's going on in the early years, but we also need to think about the whole of the rest of the chain running through, 
But we're doing it with the lead weight of being in such an unequal society all the way along. And the differences that means in terms of who can buy in the catchment areas of which school, who is paying for the after-school clubs, um, who is um, reassuring young people they don't need to worry about the loans, who is financing people to do the unpaid internships, who is paying for the master's degrees, and all of that all the way through. Um, So we're fighting in a society that's as unequal as ours is in economic terms against huge pressures that naturally go in the other direction in terms of parents knowing quite how far down it is if their children, this is more affluent parents, knowing how far down it is if their children don't succeed in this high anxiety, high stress race. And therefore, they're worried about it, but they've also got the resources to do something about it, and other people don't. Right. Nona? Um, yeah, on schools, I think you're totally right. Um, I work for higher education think tanks, so that's my area of expertise. But um, in terms of what's happened recently with like free schools not being the success that they wanted them to be, um, the grammar school policy uh, trying to be brought in by the Conservative government, uh, which I entirely disagree with, as I believe it further entrenches the class-based society that we live in. Um, so I think there's loads more discussion that can have there, and I think... From my perspective as somebody who is involved in student union politics, what higher education has um, as a tool is um, students' unions as a voice uh, and it engages students that's, that way. Unfortunately, um, children at the early ages don't have that same structure and I think actually there should be a lot more well two-year-olds aren't going to be pitching on policy but you know um at primary school levels and secondary schools there should be something done to actually give young people a much greater voice there um and that's also a responsibility that should be on people in higher education institutions too to try and work with them particularly fe colleges um weighted votes um i do believe in a democracy and that every voice is equal some maybe more important than others at times um I think there are actually two structural things that could actually change things. Votes at 16 is one of them uh, that hasn't been adopted, but it, it could be if people wanted to. Um, and also voter registration. Individual race, voter mm-hmm. registration has had yeah. a terrible impact on the number of young people registered to vote. So in case you didn't know, um, people used to be like automatically registered on the electoral roll, and now you have to individually register and each time you move house, you have to do it, which is so annoying because I've moved house like three times in the past year. Um, and you have to sign up again and do all these things. And it's really contributed to the um, lack of voter engagement. And that's something that could be really easily redressed. Um, whether it's part of a cynical move to wipe young people off the electoral register, I don't know. Um, maybe. Um, but yeah, those are two structural things in response to your question. And if anyone wants to whip round to contribute towards our student debt, we'll be here at the end. <laughs> Georgia? Yeah. Um, so when I was researching my book, there were some, for some young people, it felt like the world was that oyster. And for some, it was literally constricted to the streets they grew up on. There are some kids in, in Camden who never even go into central London. Um, and when we talk about performance as well, when you were talking about the performance of uh, white students, I think it's really important to break that down because some of the lowest performing kids um, in, in my borough are white British free school meal, white working class kids. Um, and so that the, and challenging um, the pressures of poverty uh, and, and 
promoting social mobility, I think, requires support from early years right through um, the ages, as, as you've said. And I think that actually there's huge evidence that show the importance of investment in early years, but also evidence to show that if that isn't continued by the ages of 14, that actually that, that extra support, the benefit of it starts to wear off. And I think that the points about schools are really well made, but I don't think we can ask our schools to be our social services, our mental health services, our career services, and I think we're demanding so much of our schools and we're seeing the kind of pressures on teachers um, and the, the cuts to the broader kind of set of support services that have supported disadvantaged young people through that system are, are really devastating and it means that it prevents them... I mean, the problems of getting to uni start so much earlier um, than 18. Um, so I think that w we need to address that. On the points about democracy, I, I agree with you. I, I, I support a kind of one person, one vote. But I think that um, actually, and votes at 16, absolutely, yes, and voter registration. But I think it goes much deeper than that because the young people I spoke to had com contempt for the political system. Uh, a lot of people talk about young people as being apathetic. That's not what I found. I found them to be angry, uh, alienated, um, disgusted sometimes. And I think that we've got, like, when we have a system where so many young people feel this and some are buying into real conspiracy theories about how mm. the, the way the world is, um, we, we need as a kind of people involved in politics to really look at our institutions more fundamentally and ask how we how we uh, addressing those concerns, how are we changing things, how are we giving those young people more power? We've got lots of ideas of how to do that. By, but I think, you know, we have to look at much more fundamental changes than, than, than just the, the ones votes at 16 and so on. Emma? Yeah, I'll try to be quick. I mean, I think the one thing that the, the point raises is the idea that people vote only on the basis of their narrow self-interest. So, I mean, it was one of the reasons I sort of raised how do we try to create common interests. And, I mean, one of the, that was, I think, one of the ideas behind a pay-as-you-go system. Uh, but I think we've got a lot more work to do. So um, that was kind of one of the reasons I was making that appeal. I mean, one thought, which is quite radical, is you could, um, you could reform the House of Lords by uh, making it a uh, chamber selected by random selection and just throw everyone's national insurance number in there and pull out, <laughs> pull out 600 every year. And that would totally uh, change the demographic composition of the House of Lords and have more young people and more ethnic minorities and women in it immediately. That's the uh, Athenian, Athenian democracy. <laughs> the, um, there is actually, in this area, I think there is one idea which, which you could imagine as just perhaps being within the borders of acceptable. And that is, you would... Uh, instead of taking away votes from people, you add votes to people, and you say every citizen of the country has a vote, but up to a certain age, the parent votes on behalf of their kids. Um, and so kind of with child benefit, you get a vote on behalf of that child with the kind of expectation, though you can't legislate for these things, you're thinking about what are their prospects. Uh, and I think it, whereas you try to... So that becomes a 100% electorate, including children. And that, I think, is a better approach than trying to take votes off people. Um, and in answer to your other question, um, the answer is people are, may well not be able to pay back their... Uh, make their full graduate repayments during their working lives, perfectly possible. And they're, not, they're only obliged to pay back when they're over 21,000. And if so the generality of, pa of taxpayers will pay, and quite rightly so. Sometimes criticised as a feature of the scheme, but it's a deliberate feature of the scheme. It's what one of the things that ensures it's progressive. The rest of us will pay for any person who is, for whatever reason, earning less. 
Now let's have the last round of questions and then we will take some. So a quick set of questions. Let's start at the back here and work forward. Yeah, the guy at the back there. The beard, yeah. And the tie. <laughs> Um, yeah, so lots of academics and politics, um, but I, I don't know, just to start with a bit of a statement, I, the, the post-war generation, the war generation, yeah, they, they suffered, they, they, they kept on building our society, the baby boomers sort of continued it, and then, I don't know, like, I've got a bit of contempt for what came afterwards, Generation X, I mean... Uh, all the social services and housing and education, and then like cuts on on taxes, massive tax cuts, best of both worlds. Um, could there, is there any prospect for a bipartisan push for literal uh, redistribution of, of state resources um, towards the what came after the Millennial, millennial, whatever's. Right. Which that, I am one. That is a challenge. <laughs> that is a challenge. Yes, uh, gentlemen there. Yep. Uh, hi, Carl Allen. I'm a pensioner. Yeah, implausible as that seems. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, several comments. The 50% of student loans that will not be repaid. And I'm going by the statistics. The other, the impact of that is that about 150,000 students who graduate every year who won't pay off their student loan, the payments that they will be making is in effect coming out of their future pensions. Yes, take it in. You are supposed to be two brains. It is in effect coming out of their future pensions because they will be unable to pay off their student loan. Two, we say higher education, and I wonder how high that education is if you young people will settle for the nonsense that's going on. That education can't be all that high if you will actually settle for that. Three, now, and this is about housing, and I'll be short and hard on this one, harsh on this one. 69% of the land in England is owned by 0.6 of the population. 33% of the land is still owned by the descendants of the aristocracy. 8% of the land, that is what our cities sit on. But this is the other harsh fact. Most of the land that was used for housing post-World War II that was owned by government and other government-related bodies most of that land right. has actually been used up. So what right. are we building on? Right. Uh, lady here, and then we're going to move over to this side. Yep. Uh, um, so we've been always taught to, you know, that saving is investing. What I'm interested in, in knowing is that how much of that is valid in transnational territory, and how is it then possible to, as you said, save 33 pounds a day at, for students like us? Right. Now, on this side, yes, the guy there. Just. Yep. Um, hi. So uh, I've led um, some runs for the Good Gym in Hackney where if your parents are wealthy enough, you can afford to live and you can do an internship. 
and you can get into uh, the right industry. I'm now um, manager for Underground Camden Tours, which is an initiative in Camden, which I think Georgia helped set up. We've not met, but hi. Uh, we're training up young people to um, be tour guides to improve their well-being and also improve routes to employment. A key point from that um, second one, I think, well, the first one is on the one hand, it's nice to see uh, society stepping up to, you know, um, intergenerational stuff. Shouldn't the state be doing that? I don't know. Second one, some money spent now in the short term will actually result in longer term savings because if you don't intervene and invest in those young people, you'll have mental health costs later. And I'm really seeing that, you know, the effects of, of the cutbacks. If I take those hats off, um, then... Um, personal views, I wonder, are we storing up a lot of problems? Your uh, you know, £5 million house is worth nothing if there's a riot at the bottom of the street. Um, and when, when people in the middle class are talking about leaving London because they can't make it anymore and the polarity is growing, I mean, on a bad day, I look at that and I think, well, the ethnic minorities and the young people make a rather convenient lumpen proletariat. And the people that have the money and the power, maybe it's human nature, capital makes capital, whether it's cultural or whether it's financial, they don't want to let go. Are we tinkering around the edges? Because there's some pretty big structural drivers at the moment. A hundred years ago, Charles Booth identifies that the zero-hours contracts are a structural driver of poverty. Look where we're going. Uh, right. Neo-Victorian age? Right. I don't know. The gentleman, there was a gentleman three rows behind you. Yep. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I really liked uh, John's chart on intergenerational fairness. I think it was the last chart. And I was wondering, it seemed to imply that as a society we have enough wealth and the only is issue is really transmission. We've got l uh, lots of wealth uh, and it sits with the older generations. How do we get that uh, distributed a bit more equally across uh, uh, to younger generations? Um, I mean, cur currently it seems to be... Um, I'm just wondering, you know, bequests are, for example, inheritances is one way of doing it. Uh, there are issues with that. Um, one is personal welfare. It's difficult to borrow or, uh, or uh, enjoy um, that uncertain inherent, uh, inherited wealth now. You don't know what you're going to, uh, you're going to inherit in the future. Uh, but the other one, other one might be inequality. Um, people who... Uh, don't have much wealth or don't have rich parents might not be able to in inherit that uh, right. in the future, and that kind of might perpetuate inequality. Right. So I was just wondering what the panel's uh, 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 suggestion or ideas were on how to um, uh, how to improve improve on this. How to, right, right. Yeah. So we're very tight for time. And then yeah. finally, the gentleman there, yes, a few rows down. Yep, the microphone is coming. Brilliant. I'm Damien Damianos. I'm 71, uh, well off, the baby boomer. Uh, I think that the picture that you described is uh, poor in two respects. One, uh, it is like this because the baby boomers were the luckiest generation in history. They took advantage, they, they, they are the product of the, let's say, 45 to 85, 1945 to to, to, to 80 uh, boom, which was, is without precedent in history in terms of growth and liberation and everything else. Uh, that's number one. Uh, and uh, two, it looks at uh, just uh, wealth and income as, let's say, metrics of life. Uh, 
I'm a happy 71-year-old, but still, my vigor is not the same, my mobility is not the same, my sex life is not the same, <laughs> and I'm nearer death. <laughs> All things that are not taken into account in your picture. And even but. though I'm a happy 71-year-old, I switched my position with a young one. Two of my children are LSE graduates. I would switch my wealth and old age with them in a heartbeat. So to think, uh. to, to present a picture that says that we should be envied, so much so as to, deprive, to be deprived of the right to vote, I think is, uh, the use of the word fair is rich. <laughs> right, right. Final round of comments. Omar, do you want to say well, I, I just, I mean, I think every, everyone's going to be 71, so I think the concern is also that when I'm 71, we'll have... So not only do we... When you time slice it, you know, I think, I think the biggest cause of unfairness is looking at those charts is not only are people worse off in their 20s than the baby boomers were in their 20s, that they'll be worse off in their 30s and their 40s and their... Mm. I think if, if you could find... If the question were simply should we trade off uh, a better off 20s versus a worse off 70s relative to other generations? That would be a different question than I think yeah. the one that John's painted. But I, I, I think that that's the, the problem. I think there is a separate question of, you know, how do you measure? Do you measure life courses or do you measure time slices yeah. uh, in terms of fairness? But it looks to me like in either case, we're in, it, it doesn't look very good. Right. And I, I, as I said, I think it's... Con it's it cuts against that is, is, is uh, racial inequalities, which I have worries about. So, Georgia? Um, yeah, I think it's not about a war between generations, and I don't, mm. David thinks that too. I think that actually, and if you talk to most young people, they want to uh, pay for their grandparents, and the people that they talk about mm. as being feckless are there, mm. or, or, or not wanting to pay for are there are people that are their own age. Um, and so it's, it's, I think it's about us looking at these as societal issues that we need to solve together. I think that we are far too complacent about our political institutions and, and that so many pe young people are disaffected and disengaged, and I think that we need to change that. I think we do need to look um, at attacks, um, attacks on assets, and we need, do need to think about that. And before you got here, we were talking, I was saying um, that I thought we should have a cross-party commission looking at it. And just to say it's great to see Camden people talking about the investment that we're doing in young people's services, because I know I was saying it's decimated everywhere, but we are still investing in Camden because we, we believe that young people's voices should be heard. <laughs> great. Um, well, I think it, it's hard about happiness and whether what stage you're in life. Um, but... Again, I think it's, there is an important point to make about the differences within generations and particularly older people because I know some people who are sort of retiring now and going off to Thailand and Vietnam all every other month, which is great, and others who are really struggling. Um, and I think nuance in that debate and getting young people aware of those issues too is really important. Um, sex life I won't comment on. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then on the point of zero hours contracts, um, I'm going to sound like a Marxist, but like, I mean, capitalism is here and it's thriving. Um, uh, but not, not to make light of it, there, there is real structural issues of the economy that are going to come up. Automation of jobs being one of them, which will affect predominantly young people because those are our future jobs and they, they're going to go. Um, and particularly people are talking about you know, building a knowledge economy and things like that which does relate back to the education system because um, to thrive in a knowledge economy, you need to be skilled in those areas. So that's something um, to watch out for. But, yeah, I think the structural thing is now, 
you know, people are exploited at, at all ages and no one's really got a handle on it yet. And not, there aren't any sort of forward-looking policy solutions to it at all. John? Well, <clears throat> this is part of the LSE's Revolutions um, Literary <laughs> Festival um, because we are marking, I don't think we're supposed to be celebrating, we're marking the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution in 1917. Um, I presume that's why we're here. And I think the interesting question here is why there hasn't been a revolution. I mean, the numbers that I was putting up, I, of course, they're very narrow because they're just about economic resources and they're not what matters most in life. But they do drive an awful lot of other things, and those differences are very, very big. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, rather extraordinary we've seen less reaction to that. I mean, in southern Europe you see Podemos, you see Syriza. In Britain you see momentum and the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party as being the answer of you young people to, to these problems. It's, but I think there may be a deeper reason for that, which is that we have been talking as if people are atomised. And I think in what you said... You you put your finger on it a little bit. That actually we care about our parents and grandparents, and in particular grandparents and parents care about and are worried about and are driven by their concerns for the interests of their children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't break down into this nice them and us. So another plug for the book. That we are interconnected and we understand those interconnections, but we do see the effects of all of this, which makes actually creates greater anxiety for older people as well as younger people. And I, I just reflect a little bit on what we do about it. I think the politics is important. Um, I think the thing I regret most about the Remain campaign um, was that it didn't, and not only was it the victim of differential turnout but that it failed to mobilise young people to talk to older people. The Irish referendum on gay marriage had big placards saying phone gran to explain it. And I really think there was a huge trick missed of trying to persuade younger people to talk to, to, talk to older people. I talked to, the person I thought most likely that I knew to vote for Brexit described her finger hovering over the ballot paper and then thinking of her grandchildren and then voting to remain. And if only there had been, from my perspective on on Brexit, if there had only been a few more people who had had been having those conversations and a few more younger people having the conversations about the problems that this is is causing, um, we might get a slightly different political uh, perspective on it. Yeah. Well, I think those comments, and particularly what we've just heard from John and Georgia, really do get to the heart of it. They, we don't want a generational war, and I don't think that's what individuals want. And uh, the challenge, I personally think part of what's gone wrong is people just haven't been thinking sufficiently about what the implications of policies are for younger generations, and when they do reflect on that, I think it does influence policymakers of all political parties. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for coming along. Thank you.